0: Hello, lovely people, how are you? Welcome to Series 6. And my goodness, I've missed you. But look, I'm not going to waste time chattering away because what a guest I have to get this series started. Now, most of you will know Dr. Sharne Williams from either The SOFA or BBC Breakfast or being the anchor for Channel 5 News. She's been a journalist for more than 35 years. But what you might not know is behind the scenes and alongside her life in television, she was also training to become a psychologist. She is now a doctor and has recently left her daily position at Channel 5 to start her next chapter. This conversation is one of my longest, but I also believe one of my most powerful yet. To be honest, I just didn't want to take anything out of it for you. Shan is so generous with her thoughts and advice. She talks about life as a journalist and how she came to be in front of the camera. She talks about the responsibility of telling people's stories at the very worst time of their lives. We also discuss how life changed for Shan one Christmas with a diagnosis of her own. Although I also work in television, I've never met Shan before. When I started this podcast, Shan was one of my dream guests to interview. So I decided to message her and she agreed because that's how much she believes in next chapters, not just hers, but yours too. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Dr. Sean Williams. Dr. Sean Williams, welcome to the next chapter. Sean, I honestly I feel so honoured to have you with me. So thank you so much for sparing thank me the time. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. Now, Sean, look, we start as we always do. I'm going to um, start with the prologue, but I'm just going to say I'm going to find this a little bit tricky because you've got lots of next chapters. There's a lot of next chapters <laughs> <laughs> to squeeze in here. So, but we're just going to start mm-hmm. from the beginning, which is probably the best place. So, you were born in Paddington to Welsh parents, mm-hmm. and I understand you were the first person in your family to be born outside of Wales.
1: Yes. Just letting the side down horrendously. Yeah. Um, My mum, my mum was training to be a nurse. uh, And she was, so she was in Paddington. She worked at St. Mary's hospital in Paddington. And, um, yeah and that's where she gave birth to me and and i only realized that i was the first person to be born outside wales in all our family history forever when i did a program for bbc wales which traces your roots and they said uh, they said well you're all welsh apart from the fact that you were born in london wow. and it was a bit difficult for me to i i said i was a bit disappointed actually and my mum said no no she said we Welsh always think that Paddington is the fastest and easiest way <laughs> out of England, back to Wales. <laughs> so there you don't go. worry about it too much, but, uh, but yeah, so I've got a have got a rather strange, I guess, um, mixed, mixed heritage, but I, I, I do feel when I go back to Wales, there is something about it that sings to my soul mm. and I wonder whether it's the language so my my nine and tied my grandma and grandfather on my father's side uh, always spoke Welsh, and I think just the timbre of their voice and the lyricism of it, and we spent all our holidays in in Wales. Mm-hmm. So there, there's just something quite um, I don't know connecting when I go when I go to Wales, mm-hmm. and my brothers feel the same as well. Even though we were all born in London, we were all born at, at Paddington St Mary's, where my mum was training. So, um, yeah, it's it it feels very special. But I I feel like I've got a a leg in both countries, mm. if, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it does.
1: Make- I, I, you know, I'm proud to be both.
0: Mm. If it's
1: proud to be both, um, I I am. So, uh, so yes. But it, it came as a came as a little bit of a shock that no one else had. In fact my i think my father said he was the first person to ever leave wales uh just just to work wow. in his family
0: wow incredible
1: there's was, there was not much social mobility there was not much movement he no. could only speak welsh until he was 12 he couldn't speak english
0: wow because he yeah. was he was a journalist wasn't he he yeah. uh, eventually yeah. in radio but i think he was in papers first
1: of all he was he was and actually I think using the past tense would really upset him. (laughs) Sorry, I do (laughs) apologise. He's still a journalist and he is, he's still right. Does he? Yeah. He sets the bar really high, I have to say. He, um, he, he was a journalist. So he left Wales, came to London, didn't have a job, didn't have a degree. Um, started sort of throwing newspapers in to the back of a newspaper van on Fleet Street and was the paper boy who became the sub-editor on some of the biggest national newspapers in fleet street wow. so I, which that his his resilience and tenacity um i think has inspired me and my twin brothers mm. because even in his so he didn't have a degree uh, he decided in his late 70s early 80s that he was going to start he was going to start a degree in modern history, so he went back to university when he was when he was yeah he must have been in his early eighties and then was um, was was writing essays and getting feedback and correcting the grammar <gasps> on the feedback and sending it back to the supervisors. Uh, <laughs> so he's, a, he's an extraordinary man. He wrote his first novel in his late seventies.
0: That's amazing.
1: So I think, and I think he's really taught all of us that there is no limit to learning Mm. there is no age limit you just keep going you keep learning you keep falling and stumbling and getting back up again and trying something else and seeing whether it fits and and there's there's a real joy in that and Mm. I, i think from him definitely
0: absolutely which we're going to see in your story but i mean what you know what what a start and what an inspiration so when you so you grew up in eastbourne in east sussex mm-hmm. and what kind of pupil were you at school then
1: very average and and academically uh, probably below average right quite shy mm. at the back Trying to be swaty because I knew I needed to work really, really hard to get the grades. My brothers were—I uh, thought I always told them they were naturally bright—and um, it frustrated me. They're three years younger. Mm. They, they, but but they dispute that and say they just worked harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I was yeah. I, I it was a grammar school, and I sort of felt as though i really had to work hard to to earn my place there having got in
2: Mm. Um,
1: we we didn't realize at the time any of us that we were doing an 11 plus we just came in one day and they said you're sitting a test we sat a test some of us passed some of us didn't it had a lot to do with how you were on the day and i ended up at grammar school my husband who also grew up in eastbourne ended up at the comprehensive right but and that, mm, yeah so average uh, I would say
0: that's interesting you say that though isn't it because you felt average but obviously to get into the school even you know if it was a good day as such you w- were a certain standard but then mm-hmm. it's interesting isn't it how different environments It it's just sort of a, sometimes this is how it how you feel isn't it it's just this is this is how you feel when you're at school and look at what you've gone on to do but when so many people sort of we put so much emphasis on schools but it doesn't necessarily how you feel at school we see this a lot in these conversations it doesn't show actually what you're going to go on to to do in life
1: no and I think also the expectations of what I might achieve were set at a certain level not by certainly not by my parents but by the school itself so it was suggested uh the best job for me was probably to go to a secretarial college rather than to go to university when i'm said that i wanted to be a journalist that was even even though my father was a journalist and i i knew about the job and i'd grown up with radio news on all the time and and every single newspaper i knew what the job of a journalist entailed and thought i can do that and he didn't have a degree um still there was a Well, no, we think you're more suited to something like this. And it was a, it was a strange time really, because I was doing A levels and I was quite good at biology, but in those days sound, I sound ancient, but in those days, certainly at this school, you couldn't mix humanities and sciences. So I did English and history, which I was quite good at, wanted to do biology. And they said, no. Um, so I had to do another humanity which they said was geography which made no sense because it had statistics in it however and and just didn't do very well I guess and so I think the expectations were well you know she's sort of fair to middling Um, and and that made me strive I think other people's limitations or other people's expectations has always made me think right? I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just going to try them. Mm. I'm just going to try because what is there to lose? And so I just kept trying. I thought, no, I'm going to try to be a journalist. Mm. I am. Oh, so, that's amazing. so yeah, yeah.
0: And you did. Do you think it helped you, though, to have the parents like you did, you know, and to see the example of like what your dad had done? Do you think that played a, a really enormous part as well?
1: Um, I think I was sort of immersed in news growing up. Uh, all it was there around all the time i was aware that he had a job that could take him away when the phone rang mm-hmm. i was uh, aware of the importance of uh, the political structure the importance of um how events impact on people's lives that felt very uh much a part of my growing up and my mum was an intensive care nurse and she obviously had a very different job but but it it was still quite an intense job. And I think my mum probably wanted me to be a nurse like her. Her mother was a nurse and her mother's mother's, her mother's mother was a nurse and her father was a GP. So the NHS sort of ran like a, like a seam through her family. And I think she would have liked me to have gone into the NHS. Um, But I chose, I chose journalism and and thankfully ended up having a career in it, although um, I'm now going back to, into health. So uh, so I ticked both both boxes in the end for them. But, but yeah, um, I, I think I was very, I, I think I was inspired by my mum's caring nature. She was, she devoted her life to the NHS and she was a brilliant nurse and a brilliant friend. And she always put others before, her, before herself
2: mm-hmm.
1: and she was just so thoughtful. So I think perhaps we all learnt some of that compassion and looking out for other people from her. And I think that perhaps the sort of drive and the, um, I don't know, perhaps the, the drive and the striving and the new sense came from my dad. So I like to think that that I learnt a lot from both of them mm-hmm.
2: and eventually
1: ended up with with some of some of their good qualities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Before yeah. before we go on did, did your brothers go into journalism what did your brothers go into? No, so my
1: brother one brother works for the NHS mm. and the other brother uh, is works as a lawyer uh, representing victims of mesothelioma. So conditions, uh, cancers of the lung and trying to fight for for compensation for workers, for example, who are affected by uh, asbestos. And so, yeah, I guess we're all sort of, we're all fighting to get people's voices heard, but in different ways. Mm. Mm. And I think that's what, that's what both my mum and dad taught us, which is, you look out for people other than yourself and if you have a voice you use it for them and i think that's what my i think that's what both my brothers do and i think that's what my parents did too
0: and obviously they they were clever too it sounds like you were all equally clever though sean to get that straight <laughs> that they, <laughs> they <thought. laughs> They
2: thought that they were a bit... If you asked them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As an outside, (laughs) looking in, I'm sure the listeners are thinking the same. So you then... So you went on to... um, Well, it was Oxford Polytechnic. It's now Oxford Brookes. And you did Mm. English and History. And have I got this right? You you went to the University of Rhode Island, where you did... I did. Did you? I mean, that just... I mean, Rhode Island, that sounds amazing.
1: It was. And it was amazing at the time. Was it? I mean, when was this? This would have been... Late eighties, when the only thing we knew about America was what we saw on the television or in the cinema, mm. and, and what we saw in the cinema was often, you know, I don't know, four weeks after they got it in America. Yes. So it seemed so glamorous. Yeah. And I guess I expected America to be New York that I'd I'd somehow step off a plane and be in this environment where there'd be yellow cabs and honking horns and people eating bagels and skyscrapers and, you know, and, uh, and it would just be, and from a, you know, for a girl from Eastbourne, um, <laughs> which is quite a small town, uh, to, to be, to be in that kind of environment was immensely exciting. Mm-hmm. We went for, um, we had to apply for, for a, a scholarship and write various essays and go for interviews at oxford uh, polytechnic and um and i got the one for for for, for, to go and study journalism Mm -hmm. for a semester and when i got there it wasn't quite what i expected it was a university campus rhode island is lovely Mm -hmm. it is in in america i found that if you go to university you tend to stay on campus because it's such a well during the week and then at the weekends people just left and went home Um, so it was. It became very empty at weekends, so you'd only find you'd, you'd find the sort of English uh, pupils who, who'd managed to to get this semester under their belt, just ambling about, trying to try to find something to do, because all the all the American students had cars. Mm. Yeah. And that, my my roommate, who was called Barbara at Rhode Island University, um, she had fake nails. You know the stick-on nails. Yeah first time i'd ever seen it wow this she had fake nails she had she used to curl her hair and dye her hair and she had a car and we were the same age but she had a completely different life yeah and it was like it felt so alien for a while very exciting very alien and i had for a short time i had a american boyfriend who was also at the university who i think only really went out with me because of my accent, which of course you play up because everyone's <laughs> said it again, you sound like a yeah. queen. Hello. Um, and, <laughs> isn't it a fabulous day? Wonderful. Um, so and, I, and and all of us sort of played, I think, played that, played on that a little bit. Anyway, so this this rather gorgeous guy who went who who was a, a model actually uh, in his spare time landed on me and um i mean it was a very chaste relationship but uh, but we spent quite a bit of time with one another and he sp- took me to various places in new york and rhode island and on my birthday he said it was my 21st birthday and i spent it in wow. in rhode Island, and he said what would you like as a present and I said, a baked potato with cheese and beans, but it had to be <laughs> Heinz beans, which you couldn't get Heinz beans in America. And so he managed to sort a of baked potato with cheese and beans wow. for me. That was my 21st birthday present. That's
0: love, Sean. I'm surprised you didn't marry him.
1: Ah, uh, I have I have looked him up recently, actually. Eddie. So maybe I might send him a, a message and just say, "You won't remember me." Yeah,
0: but. I bet he does. And those and that. Yeah, bit of, of a bit course hated. he wouldn't. I wonder what no. happened to Barbara and her and her um, fake nails.
1: Whatever happened to Barbara? Yeah, I've whatever. To find happened. Out. Also, uh, yeah, yeah. I remember being being in the room with her, and she would um, she'd have little baby doll nighties. And I was in my flannelette pyjamas. <laughs> Honestly, we could <laughs> With your not baked be potato. more <laughs> We could not be more different. Um, and uh, yeah, she was, I think she she looked at me as somebody who, I mean, she couldn't get her head around me at all. No. Absolutely not.
0: No. Um,
2: Amazing. Yeah. What
0: an experience, though. What an experience. Because then, I mean, talk about difference. And you started You started off your journalism career in radio Mm. um in liverpool am i right sort of in the north and i mean quite early on i mean you were straight into it weren't you because quite early on you were covering stories like hillsborough you were you know Mm -hmm. you were there in big trauma traumatic stories um i mean how how was that you know as a as a grounding but to to be sort of thrown in right at the deep end what was that like
1: um the reason i went to liverpool was because i knew it would be a real learning experience for me and would be incredibly busy it was at the time uh, you probably remember Derek hatton who used to run militant. liverpool was controlled by the militant tendency at that time the labour party wanted to kick him out uh, there were strikes um it was a very exciting news place to be Liverpool. So I, that was the first place I wanted to go. And because actually my experience of radio was limited to, I was, uh, I worked in student radio for radio Oxford, where they put me on entertainment because I was from Polytechnic, (laughs) (laughs) so I wasn't in charge of things like news and politics. I was in charge of the entertainment. (laughs) Um, so that was my experience of, of radio. So I knew that I needed to learn and learn fast. And being in Liverpool was a fantastic experience, not just because I love the community. I love Liverpool. And I don't think I've found anywhere quite like it where the community holds each other um, tightly. And we really saw that in Hillsborough. So when Hillsborough happened and I was listening on a little transistor radio because I've been following Liverpool and going to some of the matches, and when I listened to the commentary and the confusion of the commentary, nobody quite knowing what was going on, I went into the office and we were trying to get a handle on, on what was happening. And the television pictures were went from being confusion to absolute horror.
2: Mm. And I
1: think when we first started seeing bodies being put on hoardings, advertising hoardings, to be carried out of the stadium, we knew this is just, this is just unimaginable Mm. horror. And everybody was ringing in, lots of people in Liverpool were ringing the, the, the station, and this is when local radio really comes into its own, because you know that you're there provide a service but you're providing a service when you are finding out almost along with them Mm -hmm. so very often our listeners would know something before we did and phone us up and tell us about it Mm -hmm. so i was sent then down to a a pub um, at the end of the motorway and what used to happen was that coach loads of fans would come back from the match and don't forget this was at Sheffield Wednesday would come back from the match and then be deposited at the pub and then would sort of go on their way after that and so it was it was like a meeting point for everyone and the coaches would come back and the people would get off the coach and go into the pub and there was a that's where I was sent with my tape recorder to get interviews and try and find out what was going on. And most people were just bewildered mm. and in shock, and some of them had left with without knowing what had happened to their sons and their daughters and their mothers and their fathers and their aunts and their uncles. And I mean, it was it was horrible. Mm. A lot of them were showing me their complete ticket stub just to show me that the ticket stub hadn't been ripped, mm. but that that actually it was that the the policing had been such that they were allowed into the ground without being checked. And it was, it was just, it, it was awful. And I think that was my introduction to why news matters, mm. how it can help inform, hold people together, um, find out what's going on, provide a voice for the distressed and the angry. And there was a lot of anger in the days and weeks and months and years after Hillsborough, because of the way the fans were portrayed, what was written about them, what was said about them, mm. the fight for justice, and I continued to monitor it and went back and and spoke to some of the families that that uh, I've been close to at the time, and was amazed at their resilience and how they managed to to hold on mm. and fight for justice.
2: Mm.
1: It was very hard, but that was a that was, I guess, my first introduction to not just why news matters, but why it matters to be a compassionate journalist, why it matters to hold that grief really respectfully, because how much of that do you show? How much of that do you need to put out on air Mm. to know that something is, is awful. Mm. And I think that, um, having the right distance, but but also you you want to get the story, you want to hear the voices, you want to put it out uh, so that other people can know what's going on. But you're also really mindful of the fact that you have been parachuted in, you have been parachuted in to somebody's worst ever day. Mm. They might not remember what they've said to you or how they were afterwards. And so it's an enormous responsibility. It's like holding a really precious vase. Mm and you can't drop it no you can't drop it because that's somebody's life so somebody's story is somebody's life and you've got to hold it really carefully and i think that was my introduction to to the to that responsibility of journalism
2: Mm, mm
0: Which I think as well, it's fair to say John. not everyone does have. So because journalists can be portrayed in a, you know, or they're just after the headline, you know, that kind of thing. But when you talk like that, like you say, it's an enormous responsibility. And this was something that went on with you, which we'll go into. But you were you were in some, you know, you went to the earthquakes in Pakistan. You know, you've been to Thailand. You've been in people's lives where, like you say, they don't even know what they're saying but it's your job mm-hmm. but you've also got to put your own emotions aside when you're seeing it and that mm-hmm. that's also led you into the work that you're doing so it's it's just it, it's it's just such a, a huge thing isn't it
1: yeah it is and and i think that that thing you were saying about managing your own emotions when you're there you do realize that your first duty is to the people whose story you're broadcasting mm-hmm. and therefore your sensibilities, your emotional, I don't know responses to what they're going through, you have to put to one side because it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about them. And so I think what most journalists learn is, even if this has affected me, and we know that it does, because that's what i that's part of the research I did in in in, in uh, that's part of the research I did in psychology even if it affects the journalist through something called vicarious trauma or secondary trauma, where you can experience some guilt for getting the story, for leaving them with their horror, for using it in a particular way, you need to you need to reflect on that a bit further down the line because your first job is to get it out mm. and to do it well. Mm. And so I think we all have that, Slight distance between you and the story. Yeah,
0: yeah. And,
1: and and that can be, you know, that that's a very useful strategy. Which is, I tell you what, I'll put it in this box and we'll get to it later.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. It's just remembering to get to it later. Yeah. And how to mm. get to it later. And you need to do that. And you need to process it because otherwise, it just builds up and builds up and builds up. And that's not that's not good for anyone. Really. Yeah.
0: Which we'll come which we will come on to. It's a fine line as well though, isn't it? Because the what sort of connects us is is emotion. So when someone's mm-hmm. watching something at home, um and they just you know, get a snippet of a you know, a three minute news report, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's and you can't I know like you said that like when you were in Pakistan, and again we'll go we'll go on to that, but you know, you couldn't ever convey what you were seeing. It's it's just impossible, but it's how you do it. So you have to still have a little bit of a element of the emotion you can't sort of cut it all out because that's what's going to connect to the person watching at home, but it's, it's getting the balance of all of it, right. Isn't it?
1: Yeah. I, I don't know whether it's emotion so much as understanding. Mm. Um, And I don't mean understanding in that sort of rather crass. I know what you're going through because of course we can't, Mm. but, but understanding um, their emotional responses to something. Mm. So I, I, I think we, we perhaps are, I noticed Lise Doucette um, and Clive Myrie and, and all those other brilliant reporters and correspondents out in Ukraine, whenever they are broadcasting and whenever they are asked a question about their, their own emotional responses, while they might say something, it always goes back to the, we're lucky, we can leave, yeah. these people can't this is what I'm saying. So I think, I think most journalists, most reporters and correspondents will acknowledge this is a ghastly situation. And of course you're going to have an emotional response, but, but that isn't, that isn't the story. That isn't the important bit of it here. Mm. The impact on the journalist isn't the important bit of it here. Mm. That's something for them to work on, but it's about the emotional response of the person caught up in it. really.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: Because you also so going back to you, I mean, I mean, it's 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 just I mean, incredible. So so you started off. So there you, I mean, there you started. Now, as and Sam, so you stayed in radio, radio for quite some time. You went into BBC mm-hmm. to Radio Four. You were editor there. Um, you were you went to Radio Five Live as well. Then you eventually you moved to output editor at BBC News Twenty Four. So you ha- you you were in journalism journalism for a long long time um and you were doing like huge huge jobs but then one day somebody there was some screen tests going on for potential presenters and somebody was unwell and you stepped in
2: yeah (laughs) i mean
0: that's just
2: I, I mean, changed. yeah,
0: then I mean, there we go. I said you're going to be tricky with all these next chapters, Sean, because this is the thing. We're at, we halfway haven't even started, but so I mean, obviously, you had such a wealth of of experience by this stage, but did you ever consider, did you want to be in front of camera?
1: Uh, so I was I was an output editor on um, Radio Four. So I worked on the World at One and PM and the World This Weekend. So mm-hmm. when you're an output editor, you're in charge of the output for that day. So that was that was my job, and I was also um, put in charge often of budget co- coverage, election coverage, conference coverage. So politics was my thing, really, which I really enjoyed. So when the job on uh, News Twenty Four came up it was as uh, an assistant editor. An assistant editor meant that you were effectively in charge of four hours of, of output along with an, an editor and, your, and recruiting producers and reporters and things like that. And I thought, oh, television, do I want to go into television? I oh, it might be quite fun. And um, yeah, uh, initially I was thinking, Nah, television? Do you really want to go into television? Uh, because the, I love the immediacy of radio, and television seemed to me to have almost too much geography about it, too much, too much stuff that needs to be done. You know, you, if you're writing a script, it's got to fit the pictures. And mm. but it's, it's a really interesting medium, and I wanted to know more about it. So I went for a job, got the job, was starting to work. We hadn't launched yet on News Twenty Four. We're starting to think about what to put in the four hours of output who we were going to appoint as producers what we going reporters what we we're going to do etc cetera, etc cetera. and then uh, i was asked to help on a screen test for potential presenters one of them phoned in and said that they couldn't make it and i've been helping out previously as the guest You know, it was never ever going to be broadcast this. They were pilots to test the the news presenters or potential news presenters. So I might be the expert and uh, pretend to be other people or the correspondent. Anyway, on the day that somebody rang in and said, I can't do it anymore, they said, listen, we've booked everything. We've booked the studio and we've booked the, we've got the cameras and we've got the director and we've got the lighting rig and everything is, we need somebody just to be, on that seat, being a presenter for a while so that we can test all the other kids out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So can you do it? And um, I said, yeah, right. And I was wearing a, um, a blue T-shirt and I borrowed a man's jacket and I had <laughs> blue nail varnish and very, very short hair and no makeup. Anyway, the problem with wearing, it was a bluey-green colour. The problem with wearing the bluey-green colour on both my nails and my T-shirt was at the back was a green screen or chroma key. And that is what is used to project images onto. So there's sometimes there were images projected onto my T-shirt or onto my nails because I was wearing the same colour. So I looked absurd. But because I think i wasn't intending to be a presenter <laughs> this this was just a bit of fun <laughs> let's do it And i said this is how long ago it was ellie it was on vhs's uh, i said if you can I'm take the vhs well. of me being a presenter then i'll take it home to the kids and we can have a laugh tonight so they did a vhs copy and unbeknownst to me they'd actually done two VHSs, and one came home with me and we all had a good laugh about it later on that evening And one went to the head of BBC News, who showed it to other people. We were then booked to go on holiday, so we went on holiday. It was very short holiday. We came back, and there was a phone call, and uh, the phone call was from the head of news, and he said, "Would you like to change career from producer to presenter because we think you'd be great for the drive time forty or seven slot?" (gasps) And I said, "I don't think I would actually. I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing. I'm really excited about launching the the channel and." He said, really, I thought, I think you you should give it a go. I think you'll find it quite fun. So I said, all right, well, I'll do it as long as I can always go back to being a producer. And so that was the agreement. The agreement was that I would start being a presenter in the knowledge that if I wanted to run back to producing and editing, I could. And because I'd done no presenting before, they put me on BBC World to learn i guess before the channel actually went on air before bbc news 24 went on air Mm -hmm. and so i was learning in front of 50 million households and making mistakes and i'm sorry if you're watching bbc world and you thought who is this woman um i remember i was doing luckily the time that I was doing it was all around the Northern Ireland peace accord, and because I knew politics and because I felt comfortable with politics, I thought, "Yeah, this is this is this is my field. I'm absolutely fine." And I was doing a rolling news program on BBC World, and it was all about the um, uh, the Northern Ireland peace agreement and um, the Good Friday agreement. And I was doing this doing this show three hours. It was nonstop, and I came off air. And one of the bosses came up to me, and I was desperate for feedback. And she only said one thing to me, which is never wear that jacket again. It wasn't <laughs> the man's jacket, though. <laughs> oh, probably. I don't. I just didn't think of what you needed to do to be a presenter at that time. I didn't know. I didn't know you kind of needed to scrub up a bit and wear the, you know, wear something that isn't distracting. Or uh, it took quite a while for me to get my head around it I was very tomboyish I had mm. very short hair I always wore trousers uh, and a t-shirt and and Dr Martin's. that was my that was my uniform so you needed because, Barbara with her fake nails you needed to get back to her I did didn't I <laughs> but dresses were an anathema to me you know were, were absolutely <laughs> didn't feel like me at all so <laughs> colour Dresses and colour were, were just, no, why would I want that? I need something I can run in. You know, when you're a producer, you want something you can run in. You need to have DMs that you can run to the story in. You need something comfortable. You don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you look like. God. So that took a bit of getting my head around, that the mm-hmm. first thing she said after a three-hour broadcast on the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement, or the build-up to it, was you need to change your jacket. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, no. I
0: suppose it could have been worse, Sean. If she said your interviewing skills were terrible, then that was be a trickier thing. Yeah. At she could just change. Yeah,
1: it. I guess so. I guess so. And then, but then I just thought, oh, actually, this is quite fun. Mm-hmm. And News 24 turned out to be quite fun as well because it it was uh, it felt like an experiment. Well, it was an experiment at the time. Very brave thing for the BBC to do to go into 24 hour news. And there were loads of great people working on it. So, so Sarah Montague, who's who's now presenting The World at One, my old show. Um Krishnan oh, Guru murthy who's now on Channel Four, Kate mm. Garraway, who's mm. now on Good Morning Britain, um, Matthew Amarilla um, I was working with Gavin Esler,
2: mm.
1: uh, who was the, the American correspondent. So um Bill Turnbull, who I ended up working with. Mm. Uh, so it, it was a there was a host of really great people there and I made some of the best friends uh, ever because mm. we were all thrown into this ridiculous environment where we were making telly with limited resources and using new technology and stuff would fall off air all the time. Mm. And it was it was a great place to learn. Mm. And I'm glad social media wasn't around then.
2: Yeah. <laughs> because
1: they they <laughs> be there yeah.
0: Did you were you nervous? Did you used to get nervous from the very
1: beginning? um i don't remember being nervous because i don't remember there ever being time to be nervous
2: mm. i
1: think because it felt like a roller coaster so you didn't really have time to prepare because of course you were getting in the seat of the person who had just vacated it who was on the previous shift mm. so you would sit down and then bang you're on air you're doing the headlines you're doing the news you're interviewing people and it's diddle 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 did, until you come off air. So mm. there was really no time to be nervous,
2: mm. and
1: and I think that was a that was a good thing. I think if I'd been waiting around, I always felt when I was doing the World This Weekend on Radio Four as a, as an output editor, I'd start working on the Tuesday for a program that went out on Sunday. And actually I'd be much more nervous about that because I'd be thinking, what am I gonna put in the program? And the today program would do it and then somebody else would do it and then I'd have to think of something else. And then, so by the time you go on air, you've got this huge amount of of anxiety, I guess, that's overstating it somewhat, but there is a degree of nerves. Whereas if you're just thrown on air, you've got no time to think. Mm, and that that was the best thing for me so you think on your feet Mm. and that also was the best thing for me I Mm. think if you think too much about something you're not necessarily acting instinctively and intuitively and Mm. I think Mm. acting instinctively and intuitively in the moment is the best way to be I think that as a psychologist it's the best way to be sometimes to just be following somebody's question following where the story goes yeah. Rather than yeah. having a prescribed, right, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do that, and then we're going to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and also I just think, though, you can't sort of underestimate the bank of experience you already had, that you understood you understood how things work, and that knowledge and that, it's like a cushion, yes. a cushion to fall back on. I was really lucky.
1: I was really lucky oh, yeah. to have that it because it for. meant that when a prime minister was thrown at you at the last minute or a chancellor or um i don't know it could be anyone it could be the ceo of a huge business Wh- uh, whoever is giving you at that moment i knew that i had been there before as a producer or or an output editor so it didn't that yeah. sort of stuff didn't phase me politicians didn't phase me
0: no 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 um let me just ask you here sean so you said you had so by this stage you had your children Do you? you had your boys by this stage
1: did you I had my boys by that stage. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah.
0: And how did you find that when you're working sort of in the kind of job you were doing there and sort of the balance just for anyone sort of just listen to this? Because, you know, because I know from from listening to your book, which we'll we'll talk about and sort of what a family orientated person you are. So to have, you know, that that was a you must have had quite a lot of juggling going on, put it that way.
1: Yes, um, I, I, I guess so. Do uh, you know, it, it seems like such a long time ago. And it's not really. When was it? 2000... and No, 1997. 1997, I, I was
0: going to say, yeah. Yeah,
1: 1997 until 2001, I was on News 24. And then 2001 to 2012, I was on BBC Breakfast.
2: Mm.
1: So I would say that the uh, the early bit of that television career... I was there to get them to school, but not there when they got home from school. Mm. And, but when I did BBC Breakfast, which I did for eleven years, which was a much much longer stint, I was always there when they got back from school. Yeah. So and that that to me, or I mean, getting up at three thirty in the morning is is never nice, and you never really uh, get used to it. But it did mean that I was around for their a lot of their. School secondary school years which felt quite important to me yeah and you know not that they probably were ever aware of it bibbling around in the background making sure they had something good to eat you know just keeping an ear out mm. really seeing mm. what was going on in their lives and they went to the local comp so and it was literally just up the road so they would bring their friends home for lunch and uh it it felt that was a really good job i think with a family life and i was very lucky to have it and i was still doing the occasional one o'clock news or six o'clock news or 10 o'clock news and doing other there were some primetime shows that i did as well some consumer shows so there were other things that i would i was doing but i think as far as a family life was concerned it 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 worked mm. it did work
0: Mm, it's odd how the crazy shifts to a normal person, like getting up at half past three, but weirdly it can help with family life not going out to the yeah. nightclub or anything but certainly for family yes. life,
1: well yeah, because they got themselves to school yeah and and then and then I was around when they got home from school, yeah, so I think that they were they were not really aware of um me not being there
0: yeah 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 I'm so you know i'm because we've got so much to talk about and I'm just so conscious of your time but and it's hard to sort of sum up what you did but i mean you say it's sort of there very naturally but yeah you were all those years on bbc breakfast and i used to i have to be careful because i w- used to work at gmtv so i feel like i'm being naughty to admit how oh, much did I, I did and i feel very naughty to admit how much i used to watch bbc breakfast but i used to oh, watch you my dad and i we used to, and he loved you and bill turnbull it's like one of you know his oh. favorites and funny enough my husband and i were saying that because he's a journalist as well and we always think of it, you're always very um and i mean this you know i'm not saying this in any kind of a gushing way it's just as but, but the fact that you were very po- you know always very you like very poised but always had lots of fun as well in in difficult situations you know you bought all of it and that was a you know I know that looked very natural and I'm sure it was between you and Bill Turnbull but I also know how incredibly hard that is to create so I mean that must that was such an enormous job for you wasn't it?
1: Yeah and and we started off um doing i started off doing weekends on bbc breakfast in 2001 and then uh, bill joined me on on weekend and the weekends were on news 24 so we would do the friday on bbc one on bbc breakfast and then the rest of it moved to over the weekend it moved to news 24 and then we we had i think an hour on a saturday which was on bbc one and the hour on saturday uh was proving really popular and getting quite high audiences so eventually the bbc decided to take our um me and bill off uh weekends on bbc news 24 and put us on bbc one and that's when the sort of seven day bbc breakfast operation started but i think we always felt uh i mean bbc bbc breakfast felt sometimes as though we were all having fun while the parents weren't watching and Mm -hmm. um that that their attention was on the big bulletins like six o'clock news and 10 o'clock news. And we could kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously the news isn't always fun, but when you're working with a team of people who you really like and respect and where there's absolutely no competition where you know, their strengths, they know your strengths and you help them to bring out their strengths and they help you to bring out your strengths
2: Mm.
1: and supplement your weaknesses. That was the kind of team that we had. Mm. That was the kind of relationship that me and Bill had. And we'd met anyway in 1992, no, 1991. We'd met in 1991 in Arkansas in America, where he was the America correspondent. And I was a producer coming over from Radio 4 to make a radio programme on Bill Clinton's first election campaign. So we had known each other a very long time. So it was, uh, a lovely, lovely surprise to work with him on BBC Breakfast. Mm. And then, when they were sort of shuffling around the chairs, I'd already moved to the main BBC Breakfast position—Monday, um Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday—and I absolutely thought, like, he's he he would be great to sit alongside. Mm. And, and he then joined a little bit later, and that felt like a lovely partnership. Mm. If you're going to wake up with and sit next to somebody at. at silly clock then do it with somebody that you love and respect and value and mm. um, that's the kind of partnership that we had yeah so we were very lucky really
0: yeah well Again, I'm not sure. It's, it's Again, it goes back because again, people you hear all these dreadful stories about TVs and egos and that, but it, this all goes back right to that very beginning of you, isn't it? That you know you're telling people stories with this compassion, but also that works with treating your colleagues with compassion as well, doesn't it? it it's a mm-hmm. it's a different sort of way of looking at all. And um, and you went. I mean, yeah. when I was reading Sean about everything, you know, I did know what you'd done, but you kind of pretty much have done. I would say you pretty much done everything, haven't you? You did all the big bulletins. On the BBC, you did, you know, with Radio Four. You've been on the One Show, Watchdog, City Hospital, um, mm-hmm. then and then you went over to Channel Five. So you and you know you fronted the news there. So you, I can't really think of many boxes as such. You 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 haven't ticked. And did you? It's very hard to sort of think of any kind of question without sort of talking to you all day about it because I could, but when you sort of when you look at it and you look at it like that what is the sort of the, the the area there that sort of stands out the most that you feel when you said you wanted to go into journalism sort of be telling stories in a sort of compassionate way that, that the moment that you feel that that springs to mind now when I say that what is that moment where you've sort of felt felt so honored and you were in the job being able to do what you wanted to do
1: Oh gosh that's such a big question I know because I'm then... sorry. No, 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 no. It's a good question. Thank you for asking it because you're, you're making me think, but it's, um, there are so many, there are so many times when I think actually that was, you were really honoured to be broadcasting to a loyal audience in that moment and waking up with them and bringing them that news. Uh, it, it, if it's a difficult sort of emerging story, remember when the miners were trapped underground Mm. and Matt took, that was a, that was a story that was developing in our time when we didn't know what was going on really. And we were getting pictures, but we didn't know whether they were alive or not. And it felt extraordinary because you felt like we were all in it together, watching it together, like some awful movie where we didn't know what the end was going to be. But I think in terms of looking back on a career and and, and realising what, how privileged I was, I guess, without, without sounding trite, uh, the London Olympics and presenting from the, the London Olympics in 2012 was amazing.
2: Mm.
1: I think reporting from, I did a lot of reporting from disaster and tragedy and spoke to some extraordinary people during and after. And I think also understanding the, the resilience of people who have gone through really difficult times, catching up with them later, that was a really important thing to do as well. So people who, for example, who'd gone through seven, seven and lost people, lost loved ones, perhaps became injured, but survived going back to them. I mean, gosh, there are so, there are so many, There are so many stories, Mm. so, so many, that I can't, it's hard for me to just isolate one. Election's very exciting, always. So, and I was at the royal wedding for William and Kate. Wow. Which was um, Westminster Abbey, reporting on that, which, again, was a story where you had to pinch yourself sometimes Mm. and think, I'm watching the royal wedding and I'm doing it as a job it's my job to do this so olympics royal wedding elections and then the the ghastly horrible unfolding tragedies that you need to report on as well i remember being at grenfall tower um, for channel five i used to live around the corner from Grenfell tower in Labrock grove And um, we were one of the first to to be there and to broadcast live from there. And that could feel quite difficult because you're in a community where you need to report their pain, but it was very new. It still felt as though we didn't quite know what was going on. Mm. There were lots of people trying to get information and not really being able to to find what they needed, and the charities and faith groups on the ground who were working at Grenfell at the time were just amazing at holding people in times of real grief and trauma. So I think you know there are times when you're there and you think back back to being respectful. Gosh, this is a difficult and complex and developing story, and I'm right in the middle of it with people who are bewildered, how Mm. do I best represent them? How do I best do this story where I don't feel? How do I best represent this story where I feel as though I am doing my best for them? Mm. And so, and I think, as I say, there's always a tension there because news cameras aren't always welcome, Mm. as you can imagine, Mm. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: sometimes they are, sometimes at disasters when I remember being in Pakistan and, being, um, and during the Asian tsunami, where local residents knew that if you were there and broadcast what was happening to the world, then the helplines would be ringing off the hook and there'd be more money and more aid and more help. And they were saying, tell the world what's going on here. Tell the world we're not getting aid. Tell the world that. And, and you think that is a responsibility. And I remember when I was broadcasting from Pakistan, a um, uh, from kashmir from the, the epicenter of the kashmir earthquake thousands of people had died and they were still waiting for food and still waiting for aid and relief and help and the infrastructure was of course um completely destroyed and they would t- the families would tell me all the time and they were living with nothing you know they were sleeping under trees they had a bowl of rice between enormous families which actually i have to say they would offer to share yeah, to me and those kind of stories are important to tell look at these people look at what they're doing look at how they're surviving Mm -hmm. and actually every time we did it on BBC Breakfast and I was there for for a good while every time we did it the helplines the UK helplines were just going to meltdown with people pledging money and support and of course you know the, the the Pakistan community here needed to know what was going on so you had a real duty a real duty you felt um to let people know the reality on the ground and to communicate back home to people who were desperate for news Mm. so i think it's a mix inevitably Mm. highlights are going to be a mix of the the exciting and the i can't believe i'm here at this moment in history Mm -hmm. you know the the olympics and the royal wedding and perhaps elections and and, and those kind of events, and I was at uh, Trump's first election as well, those kind of moments, and then also the moments where you feel the weight of it very heavily, yeah. and you think, okay, how do I do this well? Mm. That's, you know, you asked me earlier, do you get nervous news reading? I don't get nervous news reading. I get n- nervous, I think, about representing people mm. well, when I was, when I was, parachuted into a story
2: mm.
1: which was somebody else's disaster
0: yeah like you said earlier the the enormous responsibility so yeah. and before we move on to your next chapter because it does take us on to that what we do have to talk about is while all this was going on mm. you know in 2014 or I think it was just at the end of 2000 you were basically you' just turning 50 and you were working understand st- like, still at the BBC. And then you, it it was Christmas, you were about to move house. By this stage, you had your two younger children as well. You know, things were going on. It sounded, uh, you know, you were just having a lovely time. But then you then got this, an awful diagnosis that you had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And then life just completely, um, and again, so your book, which I've been talking about, Rise surviving and thriving after trauma because it's what I found um I was saying to you before we started Gordon, what I'm what I'm finding so it's just what's amazing so you, you go into the into such the nitty-gritty you know the the, the details of it that, and I think that's what makes it so relatable no matter what because we all go, have, go through things but the fact that there you were you were you know one minute you get this diagnosis and you've got this surprise 50th birthday and you sort of carry on and it's Christmas. And then it's yeah. you know go, going to your your husband's family for Boxing Day, which sounds like this fabulous, right? You know, lovely, gorgeous event, and you have to tell them that you've got breast cancer and you're going to go in to have a major operation. Uh, I think was it on the the fifth of January or the fourth of January? You know, a, a, a little while later. But you talk yeah. about it in the detail, and and I just think, I mean, that time that you you sort of carried on it for you to and meanwhile you are this person that people are watching on the news or listening on the radio you know I mean that just must have just the world must have just stopped turning for you
1: um it couldn't mm. it couldn't stop turning yeah, I've got five kids um four of them are mine and a stepdaughter and work and family can't stop turning you just have to live with what you've been presented with Which at the time was uh, the need for a double mastectomy and deal with it and try and communicate it in a way that won't unnecessarily freak people out, I guess, Mm -hmm. although it's always going to be a difficult thing to hear. Um, There was no time to be overly uh, reflective or ruminate. I just, you, you tend to be, if you have a diagnosis and if somebody says you need this done quite quickly, you tend to be on that cancer conveyor belt. And all of a sudden a diary that might've been full of work or friends or family is full of appointments and surgeons and scans. Mm. And that's the way it is.
2: Mm. So
1: just, you just go with it because there's no alternative really. Mm -hmm. And you're in, I always felt very safe with uh, the surgeons I was with. I always felt they knew what they were doing, even there's, there's no certainty in cancer. There's no ever. So even though I had the double mastectomy, which is all the breast tissue taken out Mm -hmm. there, they said to me that uh, they they weren't able to get everything and so, radioth- radiotherapy was on offer, but radiotherapy, they said, may have damaged because I'm quite slight, may have damaged some of my healthy tissue in my lungs. Um, it's a very personal thing, and, and this is radiotherapy is, a, is an amazing treatment for a lot of people. Um, for my oncologist, he said, So, you need to make a decision. Are you going to have the radiotherapy and potentially get the rest of this cancer out, or are you going to live knowing that? It might be still there. And he was, he offered me a choice and it was a choice I didn't really want to have, mm. So I said, you are the expert. I want you to make the choice for me. And he said, I can't do that. So I said, well, what would you tell your wife? And he said, I'll tell her to live with the uncertainty. Mm. Mm. So we didn't do the radiotherapy. And I still see him regularly mm. and he's amazing because we all need to live with uncertainty. Yeah. You know, none of us know what's going to happen ever. And and we do the best we can in the time we have working with the stuff we've got. And so that's, that's where we were.
2: Mm. And
1: I'm, you know, again, I know I've used the word lucky so much, talking to you early, but I, but my cancer was treatable.
2: Mm
1: and um, and early and so and I had I had very good care and I'm really mindful of other people who you know have done everything possible but whose whose cancer has progressed to a stage which is not which is not good I'm thinking of Deborah James and the amazing work she's done with cancer Um, but there are others there are others we don't know Others who are living, who are listening now,
2: mm.
1: who are living with pain or a diagnosis or long, long-term illness, mm. who will be just getting through day to day, and um, and and I'm in a position where I could go back to work, and I was operated on, and I'm being monitored, and I'm fine.
2: Mm. Well, that's
0: yeah. Well, that is very good to hear, but. I, um, in fact, I was talking about it with a friend, a colleague, actually somebody that you know, uh, a lady called Julia Reid, who worked at ch- Channel Five with you, oh, yeah. and she's also, um, she, I work with an, which is also a very good friend. But we were, we were discussing it, um, and we were talking about the level of detail that you went into, and how, how helpful that was, because again, perhaps it goes back to the, the a storytelling. I don't know, but sometimes it's the finer details. And again, whether whatever trauma you are in. But it, what I mean by that is, for example, you were talking about when you're in hospital and you two your two oldest boys, you know, and obviously they were older than their early 20s. Um, and, you know, they're sitting in your they want to be with their mum. And you mm. know, the shift of that, because I've got two boys, they're younger, but just, you know, the shift of that, you know, and then they're, at the same time that they're sitting with you and they're eating the fruit that everyone's um sent you but it's just those <laughs> I can just relate you know you can just relate to that moment and and I was thinking oh, how are you keeping this together because you will you read out your diaries and say it's Christmas and I know the doctor said to you, you know just go and drink and be merry and that and then you know, I think how is she doing this how is she keeping it together and you mentioned I think it, I don't know if it was damson gin or you were with some friends and then you did get you admitted that you got upset and it all came out but it's just so human and I think I think that Again, the enormous responsibility. I think because it's like what you say that there's no way you can control these dreadful, awful things or the fear. But these tiny little moments, they can connect you with other people, and it, and you feel, I don't. Is it like a, a, I don't know if you feel bonded? But there's hope that you know if if somebody else is going through it, that there's hope for you as well. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, and I guess that's why I wanted to put it all. Down, and I, I, when I wrote my diaries, they were never intending to, but I never intended to publish them, and that's probably why they are so raw. Uh, because I think if I had written them for publication, I would have been a lot more guarded.
2: Mm.
1: But then I was thinking about doing a book on trauma anyway. Other trauma sounds very strong, but how people cope in difficult times and whether there's a commonality in coping strategies or what do they do when something really horrible which happens to us all in various ways comes along and they 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 have to deal with it and then pull themselves out of it and how do they recover and recover well and so i I wanted to write that book and then the publisher said well um you've just been through an experience of breast cancer and we think it'd be a good idea if you write about that my first reaction was like not writing about that <laughs> because I haven't told anyone i would kept it I, I've always kept my kids um away from the public eye and I didn't want them to be while I felt weak and vulnerable I didn't want to also be thinking about protecting them so it's quite selfish I guess I mean I didn't I didn't want to worry that that they were finding it too hard because not only were they dealing with their mum going through all this but they were also having to deal with public reaction if there was going to be one so and that was that was just uh, that was just the way I felt about it at the time I might feel differently today I, I think it's been really useful for other people to document um, their progress in real time and, and I guess what the diaries did was document the progress in real time mm. and I, and I, I so I, I, I wanted that honesty but I also wanted to put other people's very different stories in there, which aren't connected with cancer, but might be other life experiences that, that have been quite profound to find out what their learning is and what we can all learn from them. So that was the book that I wanted to write. So I guess the, the book comes from the prism of this, of, of my experience, but then it, it sort of goes into the science and um, top tips on sleep and exercise and, mm-hmm. um, thinking patterns and other people's coping strategies and lessons we can learn and I wanted it to be like a toolkit really Mm. so so at the end of the book somebody came away with with some strategies that they could go okay if if I come to a hump in the road or I stumble and fall over I know that I can try this and it might work it might not work but if it doesn't there are you know a dozen other things that I that I also know yeah. now so that, that was the kind of thing I wanted to write
0: yeah yeah well it, it helps such a, it, if someone's listening to this and they're you know somebody might be listening to this and like that hang on this is Sean Williams and you know all the things that you've been you know that you've done you've achieved but also the incredible things that you've seen the history sort of in, in the making as such but you know to show sort of the resilience, you talk about sort of your vulnerabilities as well, which is just very, very powerful. But you then you do appear, certainly appear to seem to have come through it and to show a resilience to be able to talk so honestly about it as well. How does someone find that resilience? Where did you find your resilience from and how does someone else find it?
1: Well, I don't think you go from something horrible to be kind of huzzah and now i'm well and i'm going to tell you all about it because i'm this strong resilient person who acknowledges their frailties and vulnerabilities but is essentially you know championing recovery firstly um i think you need to acknowledge if something is difficult and traumatic that it's difficult and traumatic and and not have i'm not a great believer in the kind of just think positively and, and you can pull yourself out of it i really am not I'm, I'm more as a psychologist, I'm more, if you're angry, be angry. If you're, um, fearful, be fearful, but know where that reaction comes from. So it's often not the situation. It's the reaction to the situation. It's often not your thoughts. It's the reaction to the thoughts. So if we can sort of take this apart bit by bit and see why you react like that in the moment, we're not saying it's not justified but we're saying, okay, let's look at the stuff around that. That, That's much more helpful. So it's a much more reflective place to be than being in a sort of state where you go round and round and round and thoughts go round and round and round. And the self-critical voice, my doctoral thesis was on self-compassion and it it focused a lot on the self-critical voice. And I think a lot of us have a, a, a bullying voice that we would never use for other people, but we're quite happy to use in ourselves and i think just being aware of when that voice comes in and then what you do with it how much you pay attention to it what other voices do you bring in because it's much harder to bring in the self-compassionate voice self-criticism is almost like a default the brain will always go firstly to the negative because that's how brains work it's a primal response the reason the brains go to the negative straight away is that we need to survive so it's a basic survival mechanism so it's this experience is going to be frightening and terrifying so i'm going to run away from it or i'm going to freeze or i'm going to fight and what we sometimes need to do is go oh no hang on Let's just interesting you respond like that take one step back have a look at it is that actually the case bring in something else and that takes that takes a lot more energy Mm. (laughs) cognitively so um i guess that's what that's what i've been been working with that self-compassion and i would say if somebody's going through something really difficult now then the first thing is to show some kindness to yourself and all the complex emotions that you'll be feeling in this moment and not to beat yourself up that you look around you and you don't feel like you're coping as well as other people or you should be recovered, or it's six weeks, why aren't I feeling better? Or I felt fine yesterday and I thought I was doing well, why have I fallen back today? So what may happen, and my research was with patients with acute cancer and who had were in palliative care, some of them as well, with this strong self-critical voice, they were saying, um, I've invited this cancer in. It's my fault. Um, I'm not dealing with it properly. Um, I should be better. I should be fitter. Um, why aren't I doing this? And that was their self-critical room to voice. that was going round and round and round and round. We did an eight week mindfulness course. I know the word mindfulness will put a lot of people off, but basically the mindfulness is just go, stop, take a breath, be in the present. And invite a different kind of voice in. So, what kind of voice would it be if it was a friend seeing you now? What would they say? How would they? How? What? What hand would they hold out to you? And how would you feel yourself being pulled up? And use that for yourself. Mm-hmm. And they found they profoundly changed their way of thinking mm-hmm. at the end of this this mindfulness course. And a lot of it was about just being aware of what that criticism was saying to them. So I would say if you're in a difficult place at the moment, really hard and struggling, then my first, my first piece of advice is be mindful. So know what's going on with you and be aware of your reactions to things, your thoughts of things, how your body reacts to things and your behaviors. Are you withdrawing or avoiding, be grateful. So think of the tiny things that 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 might be holding you together at this moment and be kind, be kind to yourself.
0: You do really know what you're talking about, Sean, because now you are a doctor. You are a doctor. So alongside everything we've already been talking about. Now, you started this. Is it 10 years ago? It's taken you 10 Mm -hmm. years. So so you started this before you had your breast cancer, didn't you? So was it just something that you, was it from seeing colleagues? I know you were sort of affected when you could see that colleagues were affected by trauma, but where, mm-hmm. where did this, what made you, because you went to the University of Westminster, I think you were a part-time student. So alongside this enormous career that you already had, and you started another one, what made you actually start doing that?
1: Uh, I'd, I'd been trained as a trauma assessor while I was at the BBC and because I wanted to help colleagues and and understand the way the brain works, I guess, when something difficult happens. And I'd always fancied learning a bit more about the brain. So I started a, a science master's in psychology because I was interested in the, the, the sort of neuropsychology, what's what's actually going on in the brain. Um, what happens, which bits of the brain light up when anything happens and what feeds into what and how can we change that? Because the brain is is plastic um and it's not obviously it's, it's just a few <laughs> kilos of sort of fatty rice pudding or what looks like it but but you can change the way you respond to things and your thoughts by by looking at things a little bit differently and i wanted to know more about that so i did an msc in psychology and then i and and then i had cancer and then i decided that actually i wanted to know a bit more I wanted to become a psychologist and that's when I started the doctorate and started training in the NHS. And so I got there eventually, mum, you're not around to to see it, but I actually ended up working in the hospital St Mary's Paddington where she first trained. Wow. I, well, I wish she'd been here to yeah. see this, yeah. she would have laughed. We would have gone out for, a, you know, coffee and just giggled about the fact that she wanted all those years for me to join the NHS. Yeah. And I did. Now I'm back. And my son's a doctor as well, and she didn't know that, and I wish oh. she'd known that but her grandson would have been a doctor, Um uh, a doctor for the body. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, amazing. so yeah, it was it was just a it was just a passion really, and I wanted to know more about the brain, and I wanted to see whether I could walk alongside someone and help them work stuff out
0: mm. i love that when you say that when um you sort of started going into like your classes and you were with a teacher there who was they were quite strictly obviously they knew who you, who you were and they recognized you from the television but it was very much do you know what you're starting at the beginning you're starting yeah. all over again you know you failed and you've got to you've got to get this right you know so
1: it's, i i, 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 I an assignment i felt i was furious,
0: I
2: was furious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yes i failed an assignment and actually you know i think That has been one of the real benefits of this has been people, um, has been starting again, has been starting, starting at the beginning. And and then, you know, because if you've been in a business for a long time, and I've been a journalist for 35 years, you forget what it's like to start. Starting something is tough and, and gritty, and you make mistakes and you're constantly learning and it can be very frustrating because you want to be somewhere fast and you can't get there fast. Certainly in psychology, you can't get there fast. Mm. You have to learn. And I think, and the learning um, and the doing takes a very, very long time. Mm. So um, I would be working in the evenings until the early hours and then getting up first thing in the morning. And then because I was doing the news as well and just trying to fit in the hours where I could. But I was really very conscious of, the need to do so much and learn so much and test myself and um, and sit with clients and work in difficult environments and help people find a way through uncomfortable stuff and I loved it but it 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 wasn't easy and you're right you know I think lecturers and are, are absolutely right to test you, mm-hmm. you, know, you don't, that's why it's hard to get a doctorate. Because yeah, right. because yeah, because right. they make it hard. Yeah. Um and um and and I've I've had a, an interview for an NHS job last week. Yeah, last week. And my brother who works for the NHS, I was asking some advice from him and saying, Oh, because I haven't done an interview since nineteen ninety seven. And um, because as a presenter you tend to just people say to I think you. And you never know why, uh, and and so I hadn't done an interview so long, and I said I d- I don't know what, you know, what they like to ask, and he said, well I've got no idea, but they might ask you a vision question, you know, why do you want this job? And I said, oh, are they going to ask me? And he looked, of course they're going to ask you that. So anyway, so I prepared for various answers. I worked really hard, and then of course the interview was nothing like that. Mm. It was so tough. Mm-hmm. So tough. And and I felt as though I'd been hauled over the well, it was a tough interview. Let's mm-hmm. just say it was a tough interview. And I was absolutely sure and it's a competitive job as well. Mm-hmm. Um and there'd be lots of great people who were who were going for it with with very different experiences to mine. And I thought there's no way in the world I'll get this job. And when they phoned me a couple of days ago and said, congratulations, mm-hmm. you've got the job. I laughed. He oh. said, Why are you laughing? And I said, Because I didn't expect to get it. I didn't oh, expect gosh. to get it. Oh,
0: congratulations.
1: Um, it's,
2: Amazing. Nice be,
1: it's nice to be valued as a psychologist. I mean it's great to be valued as a psychologist. I'm 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 just so honored to be in this environment mm. and working. I've got a lot of learning still to do, mm. huge amounts of learning still to do mm. and experience to gain. Mm. And I different experience as somebody who's sort of worked in the in in a different field for three and a half decades but in this field you know i am i'm am absolutely still learning and i want to be with people i can learn from
2: mm. okay so,
0: so this moves us into so your to be continued section which i again charlotte i'm so conscious of your time so please don't think i'm taking advantage it's just so fascinating but we, ne- we are nearly there we are nearly there so to be continued so yes yeah, so so you so you've left channel five now well, not uh-huh. completely. I mean, that not completely. Decision, yeah, yeah. But, but in terms of so, so, and you so, so, what is your new job, and when does it start?
1: So, I'm I'm still going to be broadcasting. The decision to leave Channel Five Day, it was a decision to to step down from Channel Five Daily News. I've, I've been doing. We relaunched an hour show in November, uh and in that show, and I was. So it was it was great fun to relaunch. It's always great fun to relaunch a new show, and it, it's been doing well. And I've loved presenting it. And part of the show is a regular mental health slot, and I do an interview with somebody who has gone through something difficult, and they talk about what their learning is. So it's right up my street, and that's called Mind Matters with Dr. Sean. And that <laughs> bit of the program is going to continue. So Good. I'm continue doing those interviews for. Uh, for the news um but um but yeah so i decided i decided that if if i'm a doctor of counseling psychology i needed although i still love broadcasting and i don't intend to give it up um but i'd like to learn a bit more and the only way i could learn a bit more is was to move away from the full-time news broadcasting job and uh and learn a bit more so that's that's what i'm doing so the new job is going to be um part-time nhs psychologist uh, can't tell you much more about it at the moment but um and i'm also doing um i'm going to be doing some work for radio as well which will be great fun and doing some more tv stuff and i do some uh, i also do work with journalists and mental health and trauma so i'm doing a a free event at City University, my old university, tomorrow on journalism and trauma. So, it's it's bringing together. I often like bringing together mental health and journalism, and or mental health mm-hmm. and broadcasting, and see how they sit. Mm-hmm. But it will be it will be a new it will be a new and emerging role. So it might be a, a little bit clunky at first while I try different things and think, oh, what might this be like? What might this be like? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and we'll see where it we'll, we'll see where it goes and we'll oh, see where it yeah. goes i'm quite sure i i have had an amazing career mm-hmm. and i intend to keep working mm-hmm. and this is just a new iteration of of something
2: yeah
0: well it's certainly a next chapter it's just i just think it's amazing and a, a, something for a future discussion as well um let me just ask you this do do when you see people do they recognize you
1: from the news or do they do they put two and two together um do you know in in about 500 hours of counseling it's come up twice mm. and and I think maybe because people either don't see me as the person off the telly uh mm. or they don't care that I'm the person off the telly
2: mm.
1: um and I think if somebody's coming to see you and they are distressed then they want somebody who's going to help mm. and as long as your relationship with them is feels like a a strong a good strong relationship then then that work continues whoever you are
2: mm-hmm. and
1: of to the two people who said oh you're that woman of the telly <laughs> um i said uh, i said yes and if it's uh, if it's a problem in any way or if you see me and it was a couple of sessions down the line if you see me as the tv person and not your psychologist then i will we'll work with a colleague instead and Mm -hmm. and we'll find somebody else
2: Mm.
1: and that was that was never the case but um but yeah inevitably it'll it it may happen i don't know the further i get away from regular daily news perhaps i never look like a a television person because you know in television you've got the lights and you've got a nice dress on and you've got the makeup Whereas a psychologist um and this is a podcast that so people can't see me, but you can Ellie. Yeah, you yeah, look lovely to me. Oh, I've got my hair scraped back and no makeup and so I don't think the expectation is that a telly person will be sitting in front of them. No. And in truth, I am not a telly person when I'm sitting in front of them. No. I am a psychologist. Yeah. And and that's who they've come to see, a doctor of counselling psychology. And that's what I am.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's sort of different hats for different days for different roles.
0: Yeah you might even be able to bring back some of your tomboy ways, Sean. if you, you know, finally at last. Yeah,
1: I, thinking, I know I've had, I, so I grew my hair long over lockdown. So I'm taking my, my clip out okay, now so comes. that you can see how yeah, long it's gone. It's down it. to below my shoulders. Yeah. And I loved having very short hair. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether to just go to the hairdressers and have it Do all it. cut.
0: Yeah, why not?
1: yep exactly the next chapter the
0: next chapter Sean. you're living it you're so very finally your acknowledgments who would you like to thank who has helped
1: you along the way oh gosh so many people have helped me along the way i would like to thank my parents my brothers my close friends uh, all of whom um, i see regularly and i try to invest in and they do invest in me and i'm very grateful for them and they were wonderful during the breast cancer and have been subsequently. Um, I would like to thank um, all the lovely people that I've sat next to. So, um, oh, you know, Bill and all the all my co- all the co-presenters who've made things fun um, and become friends. I'd like to thank all my supervisors in psychology who gently. St- steered me onto a, a different path when I might have been losing my way on occasion. I'd like to thank all the clients who invited me into their lives and allowed me to be with them in really difficult moments so that we could work through together how to manage something awful. I thank them.
0: And just very finally, if someone is listening to this and they're yeah. thinking about their next chapter, I mean, we've discussed, you know, we've discussed a lot. And, in, you know, everyone is in, you know, in different phases of their life and can be going through something as well. But equally, that can be a time where you're thinking, do you know what? It is time for me to start something new or this is the t- this is the time I need to take the leap. But they're they're feeling frightened. They're not 100 percent sure what they want to do. but They know yeah. they know Look, life's too short for this. I need to do something. Where would you suggest they begin what would be your advice to them
1: Oh I think really ask yourself some honest questions about what's keeping you where you are and what's stopping you trying something else and I think sometimes you need to have a a cold hard look at your reactions to things being we all want to be safe and that is a natural human reaction so we're more likely to be to stay where we feel comfortable than to try something that feels uncertain and wobbly but if we don't try something that feels uncertain and wobbly we may never find what makes us truly happy and actually a number of things can make us truly happy at a number of different points in our life but if you Really, if there's something nagging at you and something, or or just a little, a little, even if it's a little whisper saying, haven't you always wanted to? Why don't you? Don't be thinking about other people's judgments and expectations. Don't be thinking about failing because you might, and I have, just be thinking, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to give it a try. Whatever happens, happens. It might feel uncomfortable for a bit. But I promise you that change is so energising and you might find something about yourself that you never knew before. And I wish you enormous amounts of love and luck. And think of me holding your hand. Think of me holding your hand as you go through it.
0: I'm going to be thinking of that. Dr. shan Williams, thank you for just being such an amazing, special and just a fabulous guest on the next chapter.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely to see you, Ellie.
0: So, there you are. What did you think of that? Well there's just so much to take in. For me, just then, if we don't try something that feels uncertain and wobbly, we may never find what makes us truly happy. We just can't ignore that can we? we spoke also about Sean's book Rise, Surviving and Thriving After Trauma. I listened to the audiobook and it really stuck with me. I don't know about you, but I could listen to Sean all day. She gives such good advice and her words really helped me. I still keep thinking about her book and I really can't recommend it to you. But thank you for listening to this. If you're still here, that is, it was a long one, but I hope you think it was worthwhile. If you could rate and review this episode, well then that would be wonderful and may help others with their next chapter too. You can find out all about me and my next chapter at elliebarkerwrites.com. I'd love, love to hear from you. You're listening to the next chapter by Ellie Barker, A Flowerpot Production. In the meantime, keep asking yourself those honest questions. I believe in you and Sean does too. Speak soon.